people a little bit. Sorry, just to get started, just to give people a little bit of an idea of who you are, could you just kind of give a little brief description of your kind of expertise? Sure. Well, I'm I'm a philosopher. I teach philosophy, and my main interest these days is in the phenomenon of dehumanization mm-hmm. and related things like violence, genocide, racism, and so on. The lighter topics. In life. <laughs> But, but it's important to kind of know about these things, right? Because we've seen how they can kind of take action or have an effect on a society in the past. Sure, sure. I mean, how can you possibly hope to prevent or contain these, these sorts of things unless you understand how they work and what they are? Right. So just to get started, can you kind of give people a little bit of a kind of description? What is dehumanization? Okay. Well... The term dehumanization is really popular, but most people don't have a very clear idea of what it amounts to. And even those who do have lots of different concepts of what dehumanization is. So if you go into scholarly literature, say in social psychology, you'll get all kinds of definitions of dehumanization. And none of them is right or wrong, they're just different. So. It's really important for anyone who's talking about that to be clear about what they mean. And what I mean by dehumanization is thinking of others as subhuman creatures. Typically for human beings, right? Mm -hmm. So a subhuman creature, kind of like an animal? Yeah, but it's usually not quite that simple. So very often um, it's an animal, but, uh, but... Equally often, in fact, probably more often, the dehumanized others are seen as monsters or demons, things of, things of this nature. Mm-hmm. Could you kind of give an example? How, how has that played out before? Okay. So there are many, many uh, oh. examples. One of the examples that I like to use when I give talks on this subject is the example of what's known as spectacle lynching in the United States. Mm-hmm. So spectacle lynchings were lynchings that were widely advertised and attracted crowds of thousands of people, up to 20,000 people. And the victim, which was almost always a a black male, would be tortured, often for hours, um, mutilated and burnt to death. Now, they're just incredibly cruel events. And there were, there were many from the 19th century right up to the middle of the 20th century in the United States. If you look at how the media of the day describe the victims of lynching, uh, you get language like this, beast in human form, animal, fiend, demon, monster, etc., etc., etc. So that's a really good um, example. And if you look at how the victims of the lynchings were described, which is the way that white people very often described black people in that area, era anyway, uh, it kind of answers a question or contributes to the answer of a question, which was, how can you do this to another human being? Mm-hmm. How can you take... Uh, a young man cut his genitals off and force him to eat them. It's a real example from a lynching that took place in 1934. 
I mean, the, the extravagant cruelty. Um, so that's one example. Another, another very well uh, documented example is the Holocaust. Nazis saw Jews as basically, well, as Untermenschen, which means subhumans, and as demonically evil. Right? So they conceived of the extermination of the European Jews as an act of self-defense against these demonic monsters who were nothing but destructive. And, we, and if you look at Nazi propaganda, you find this very, very clearly. So it, it happens, uh, it's happened throughout history. It's, it happens all over the world. It's happening now. It'll happen in the future. Right. So for somebody to commit these kind of horror horrific acts they kind of have to dehumanize the person first they have to make them less than human uh they don't have to that's one. Okay. so so here's the issue here you you might think well why why would people need dehumanization in the first place mm -hmm. and i think the answer to that question is it's actually really hard psychologically speaking for most of us to perform acts of lethal violence and cruelty from one another. And the reason for that is we're, we're highly social animals. And all social animals have inhibitions against violence against their own kind. So it's unbelievably difficult, <coughs> sorry, to look into someone's eyes, like we're looking into one another's eyes right now, and stick a knife into their guts. Mm -hmm. People who do uh, very generally are, are, it drives them crazy. They're haunted by this for their whole life. So there's that aspect of human beings, but we're also really smart. And we recognize that uh, doing terrible things to others can be advantageous. You get to steal their stuff, you get to enslave them, and so on and so forth. So over thousands of years, human beings have worked out ways of disabling inhibitions against harm. Now, this circles now back to dehumanization. Dehumanization is one way that we do that. We think of others as subhuman creatures, and throughout time, human beings have felt it was okay to do what they want to subhuman creatures, or creatures they consider to be less than human. But it's not the only way. Another way that uh, a traditional way is the use of, of intoxicating drugs, mind-altering drugs, certain kinds of ritual practices, certain kinds of religious ideologies. All those do this kind of job. Uh, and, and humanization is, it's not, I wouldn't say it's just one of them, because it's a particularly important and powerful one. Um, I did, when I was doing research on what you were saying about dehumanization, one of the things that I found you said was you, you kind of described it as a soup that can kind of lead to dehumanization occurring, right? You have a political side, maybe a cultural side. That's right. Can you kind of speak to that? I know it would yeah. probably take hours to really get into detail, yeah. but just briefly. This is really, really simple. And this, okay. Right. So dehumanization, the phenomenon of dehumanization is kind of at the interface between things. So to understand humanization, we have to understand something about human psychology. I mean, what is it that allows, what is it that would allow you to look at me and think that's not really a human being? I mean, it looks like a human being, but inside he's not really a human being. That's the psychological side. 
But that on its own isn't explanatory because there's a whole political divide as well. I mean, once we ask the question, why is this group of people at this point in history dehumanized by this other group of people, mm-hmm. we have to take into, into account considerations outside the human mind, right? And the, so there's psychological and there's political and there's cultural. So how are people dehumanized? Let me give you an example. Uh, in some of the most toxic forms of dehumanization, the dehumanized people are imagined to be a traditionally unclean animal. So we would sit, and we have, used images like rats, lice, cockroaches, and so on. Now, in the Middle East, dogs are traditionally unclean animals, right? And, and so that notion, the other is that they're dogs, they're just dogs. Right comes up quite a bit in that part of the world, but it really doesn't work very well in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Man's best friend, right? <laughs> traditionally unclean animals. So that's the cultural element coming in. And to really understand dehumanization, we have to understand all these three components and their relationships with one another. And that's why a lot of the existing dehumanization research is flawed. So most of this research is done by psychologists, social psychologists. But they basically look at what's going on in people's heads without giving the due weight to the political and cultural dimensions of humanization. So the cultural side would be kind of, uh, you know, if they consider something a more dirty animal, they might attribute it to that. Mm -hmm. Politically, uh, would that be kind of like propaganda coming from the state or? Yeah, well, politically... And that's an important question you asked me. Let me, I'll back into it a little bit. So politically, um, we have to, dehumanization arises from conflicts, right? It arises from a situation where one group of, pe- group of people wants to do something really bad <laughs> to another group right. because they see it as in their interest. Um, and so what typically happens is that People in positions of power produce propaganda to get the rest of us to think of those whom they wish to harm as less than human. So if you look at wartime propaganda, you see this a lot. In fact, that's how I got into this subject. So, so one reason that's really important is humanization just doesn't, it doesn't just spontaneously emerge from the inside. It's a response to uh, to propaganda, to experts who claim that these others are not really human beings, and so on and so forth. Um, now, in most kind of cases where there was a huge act of dehumanization, is there normally a kind of a righteous leader at the top? I know you, I saw you gave a couple of talks and you talked about how you can kind of speak to invoke people to kind of get in a fierce state to get into dehumanization, but is there always kind of that righteous leader? It, there doesn't have to be, so it can be more distributed. So sometimes these humanizing beliefs are kind of sedimented into a society, mm-hmm. right? So again, if we look at the history of the United States and acts of atrocity perpetrated by white people against African Americans, it didn't require a kind of a Hitler figure. Uh, these, th- these beliefs were just so ingrained that they were taken as 
obviously true, beliefs in black in, in inferiority. And so if you're growing up in a society like that, all of the people you most look up to to give you guidance, your parents, the pastor, the sheriff, you know, imagine a small southern community like the one that I grew up in. Uh, they're all giving you that message. So you don't need a Hitler, right? You need people whose authority you respect giving you these messages. So if we know that we're all capable of dehumanization and certain kind of, uh, let's say, conditions can lead to it, how can we make sure to prevent it from happening again? Well, you know, this is the question I'm most frequently asked in interviews. Mm -hmm. I, I always say, I wish I had a really good answer to that question. Right. <laughs> uh, but I can kind of sp speak to it very generally. I think there are basically two fronts that this battle is to be waged on. One of it has to do with ourselves. So we need to understand how, we need to understand that we're all capable of dehumanizing others. And we need to understand why. That's an educational project, right? Mm -hmm. Most people don't think that way. They, they treat people who, who foment atrocities as they, in fact, they call them monsters. They dehumanize them, but that's not helpful. That's not helpful. Most of us, uh, if we were ordinary non-Jewish Germans in 1941, we would have gone right along with the regime, right? We would have fallen into that. So we need to look into ourselves and understand that we need to be quite vigilant. And there are various features of human psychology which need to be understood in order to really get a hold of that. The other is outward looking. And that has to do with, with the political sphere. It has to do with protecting freedom of speech so people can be called to task, supporting good journalism who can call others out, who can, who can work against the propaganda that powerful elites would really have an investment in us taking on board. That's it. And that's in the vote, voting booth. And it's also in our everyday lives when we see these things happening. Now, one of the things that bridges both of these is education. People aren't uh, educated properly. Um, I know this because, oh, there you are. That's my wife coming in with a smartphone. Who's that? Okay. Hi, man. Okay. So, I know this because I teach college students, and I teach a course called Race, Racism, and Beyond. And, uh, you know, these are students, undergraduates in a liberal arts college. They're far more educated than many Americans, and they just don't understand the history here. They're never taught it. Uh -huh. They're given a real cleaned up version. And it's very important that we understand the history of, of dehumanization and atrocity that we, us, have perpetrated. Because then that shows you, gee, you know, this all could happen again. But you've got to take that on board. For many Americans, it kind of disturbs the self-image of being the good guys. Uh, but it, it's very, very important. And I, I agree with you there. I mean, I 
took it to myself to start reading a lot of history as of late. And when I started reading ancient history and like Alexander the Great, I could see, wow, these guys are doing some crazy stuff. But even, you know, less than 100 years ago in World War II. Oh, yes. <laughs> crazy. And like when I read it at first, I was like, wow, this, is, this actually happened and it was so recent. So I, I totally agree with you. I think education on it would help a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. An- another question I have for you here is, is there a difference between maybe uh, are some people more prone to become, you know, to dehumanize? I know I read another book, uh, Why Beautiful People Have More Daughters, I think it was called. And they said men were more likely to be xenophobic while women are more likely to travel. Is that kind of men being xenophobic lead to? I, I'd be skeptical of those claims. Okay. Uh, and the fact is no one knows the answer to the question you're, you're asking. Dehumanization mm-hmm. has not been well researched. I mean, there's no, like, center in the world devoted to study. <laughs> Fair it's enough. Yeah. shocking and crazy, but that's the case. So with everything, there, there are variables. So, for instance, some of us are more inclined to push back against others when they're trying to get us to believe things. Mm-hmm. Right? Others are more suggestible. That certainly would play a role. But whatever it is, it's going to be very, very very complex um, traits of personality. So, yeah, I mean, that's the best I could do with, with that one. If, if that's you, fair. I'll let, me, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> um, another question I had was about the people who commit the dehumanization. Now, let's say you're a Nazi at a concentration camp after the war. Do these people kind of show that, like, after it happened, are they kind of, like, suffering? Are they, are they kind of like, oh, my God, what did I do? How do they kind of, what is their psychological state? They were suffering while it was going on. So, say, if you look at the, what were called the mobile killing squads, the, the Einsatzgruppen. So, you know, Germany invades Poland and Belarus and Ukraine and the Soviet Union. And so the German army is sweeping through, and then there are these units that are kind of cleaning up behind and basically slaughtering tens of thousands of, of Jews. This was before the death camps were established, so it was all bullet killing. And these guys, and this is not unusual in the history of Drosti, I mean, a lot of them suffered from terrible psychological symptoms. A lot of them were drunk all the time, and the commanders knew that was important and supplied them with liquor. It's hard. These are hard things to do. In fact, the Nazis thought, and this is going to sound grotesque, but it's true, the Nazi high command thought you had to be, have exceptional moral fiber in order to slaughter thousands of innocent human beings. Because you had to be capable of putting your feelings aside and doing your duty, which was the essence of, of Nazi morality. So, so a, lot of, a lot of people struggle at the time, because dehumanization is never complete. That is, we human beings, we're so attuned to one another that it's, it's practically impossible to look into the eyes of another person and not respond to them as a human being, right? So the, the dehumanizing tendency is always competing with another tendency, right? Afterwards, some people are remorseful, some people are not. You know, some people would do it all again. 
and that kind of varies from person to person. That's right. Yeah. Um, other than on the questions I just asked you, is there anything you would want to add on to kind of the topic of dehumanization? Yeah. Uh, here's a, a really important aspect of dehumanization, which I'm stressing a lot in my next book, which is coming out in June. Dehumanization is very tied to race, very, very closely tied to race. In fact, I call it racism on steroids. Okay. So when a group of people uh, is what we philosophers call racialized, that is thought of as a separate race, that virtually always goes with the idea that they are inferior to us, whoever us is, and they're fundamentally different. They're a lower kind of human being. That's just how race works. And I don't... See, that's why I... I think racism is built into the very idea of race. Um, that to get rid of racism, you have to get rid of the whole concept of race. In any case, almost always a group of people is racialized before they're dehumanized. They're seen as inferior, fundamentally different human beings. Dehumanization just pushes them a little bit further, right? They're excluded from the category of the human entirely. So tackling dehumanization requires us to tackle the topic of race and the phenomenon of racism, right? It's absolutely vital. So that kind of plugs back into your earlier question about, well, what do we do about dehumanization? Um, unfortunately, the idea of race is so stubbornly ingrained in people's minds that it's, this is really an uphill struggle. I mean, I could... Huh have uh, 25 young people in my class and they'll, they'll come out the other end enlightened about this stuff. But that's 25 out of 25 people. Not that many people doing this kind of work. So. Right. So you say racism or racism is kind of built into race. Yeah. Do you, do you think we could get to a place where we kind of get, get rid of race then? Or? I, yes, I think, well, that would be a desirable outcome. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> whether, whether, whether in practice it can happen, who knows? Who I knows? see. But, you know, some of us who, who do work in this area, some philosophers and social scientists and biologists are really, you know, pitching this, this idea. Race is an illusion. It, it, it doesn't make scientific sense. Um, and it's, it's just been immensely destructive over it. Well, I honestly know what is race and why doesn't it make scientific sense? Good question. Good. That's exactly the question you should ask. Uh, so what are races supposed to be? They're supposed to be groups of people who have these sorts of deep differences, are deeply different from other groups of people. And this is usually thought of as being reflected in their appearance. Not always. So Americans tend to equate race with skin color. That's for historical reasons, but that's by no means universal. Um, right, so that's the idea then. There are these people, they're just different from us, and this kind of shows itself usually in how they appear and how they behave and, and so on. Um, so does that have any scientific basis? No, it does not. So here's, here's, here's an illustration of that. Let's take the population of sub-Saharan Africa. All of those people 
apart from the white people who are considered black by Americans, right? Now, Africa is the most culturally and biologically diverse place in the world, right? Africans are not genetically homogenous. In fact, if you took, take two Africans, on average, they're going to be more different from one another genetically than an African and a European, right? So mm-hmm. it just does not make scientific sense. Um, now, you, you could say it kind of makes social sense, that is, groups of people are treated as races and described as races, these sort of invented categories, but we don't want to consider all things that people invent as, as real. So here, here are some real inventions. Dollar. Dollars are invented by human beings and they're perfectly real. Marriage, Thursdays, all those things. But I think we should treat the idea of racist is kind of like the idea of witches, right? So in the, in, from the, uh, I guess, the 15th century through the 18th century, something like 50,000 women were, were tortured and executed as witches. People believe they were witches. Were they witches? No. Witches, there weren't any witches. All right. Race, races like that. It's very interesting. I wonder if... I, I, I don't know anything about the, maybe people have a need for some sort of in-group and like that's a psychological mechanism that kind of, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It applies it to races. Yeah. Well, historically, races tend to get made when one group's, group of people, it's kind of like dehumanization, uh, wishes to uh, do harm to or exploit another group of people. Interesting. Right? So, you know, the idea of the black race for Europeans in the in the Muslim world, it worked a little bit differently. But for Europeans, that was a product of the slave trade, right? Black enslavable, right? So these were, in fact, West Africans were like really different culturally and and in terms of appearance from one another. But they were all lumped together because it was advantageous for for white slavers to to do that and. There's no evidence that West Africans ever thought of themselves as black, as a single race. In fact, you know, if you went back to the 17th century and asked West Africa, well, what are you? They might say, I'm Igbo or, or I'm Akan. They would name whatever ethnic group that they belong to. They wouldn't say I'm black. But to this day, in Africa, black, in many countries, black is not a category on the census. Interesting, yeah. Which is accepted as, as well. So you know, these categories move around, they move around across time. So I'm Jewish. Um, there was a time when Jews were not considered white. Irish people were not considered white for a long period of time. Oh, really? Were, I mean, right? Yes, in between, they were conceived of as in between white people and black people. So, these things change, they're, they're different from one part of the next, and they're products of conflict, and exploitation, and all these nasty things. Um, well, we're coming out to the end of the time now here. I yeah. found this conversation very interesting, but uh, if people want to learn more about the subject, where can they find more of you or what you talk about? Well, they, can, they can go to the website, 
uh, davidlivingstonsmith.com, where there's a lot of resources, including talks that I've given. They can read my 2011 book, Less Than Human, and they can pre-order my next book, which is called On Inhumanity, Dehumanization, and How to Resist It. Sweet, and I highly suggest you guys do, because David, as you can see, very knowledgeable on the subject, and something that I, I don't talk, I haven't seen very many other people talk about, so it's, it's nice to see. Yeah. Nice talking to you. Thank uh, you for coming on. My pleasure. And then I'll end there.